الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله. All praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on the last messenger of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa taala has told us in the Quran to take Satan as our enemy. إن الشيطان لكم عدو فاتخذوه عدوا. Certainly Satan is your open enemy, so take him as your enemy. Unfortunately, Muslims today have not heeded that warning. And we have ended up, in many cases, taking Satan as our friend. We have invited him into our homes and given him every opportunity to create confusion, create corruption in our homes and lead ourselves and our children, our families astray. The home is the basis from which any Muslim society can exist. It is the basis for the individual, it's the basis for the society as a whole. And it is essential that that home be properly guarded, properly protected from the tricks and the traps of Satan. Prophet Muhammad had instructed us that whenever we enter a home, we should call on Allah, saying, Allahumma inni as'aluka khair al-mawlij wa khair al-makhraj. We ask Allah to give us the good that is there for us in entering our homes, that we bring in with us good, and that we find the good which is within our homes. And when we leave, we take good out with us, and that we seek the good which is in the society around us. We say, Bismillahi walajna wa Bismillahi kharajna wa ala Allahi rabbina tawakkalna. And in the name of Allah, we enter, and in the name of Allah, we leave, and on Allah, or in Allah, we put our trust. Because after seeking refuge in Allah for the good that is in our homes, or to take in good with us, we then have to put our trust in Allah because no matter what we do, Ultimately, it is Allah who can protect us. All of the different means that we seek to protect ourselves will only be effective if Allah permits them to be effective. And it is ultimately Allah in whom we should all trust. When we enter the home, as in the end of that hadith, Prophet Muhammad said we should greet our families. And this is based on the verse in Surah An-Nur, verse 61, in which Allah said, فَإِذَا دَخَلْتُمْ بُيُوتًا فَسَلِّمُوا عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِكُمْ تَحِيَّةً مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ مُبَارَكَةً طَيِّبَةً When you enter houses, salute each other with a blessed and excellent greeting from Allah. This is Allah's instruction that we give greetings of peace to each other after saying Bismillah, seek, putting our trust in Allah. When we enter the home, 
we give greetings to those who are in the home. In a statement from Prophet Muhammad he also stated, Ya Bunaya, Ida Dakhalta ala ahlik, Fasalim, Yaku Yakun Barakatan alayka wa ala ahli baytik. My son, when you enter your family, upon your family in your home, greet them. It is a blessing for you and for your family. You're invoking at the time of doing this, we are invoking Allah's blessing on ourselves and on our family. And the Prophet ﷺ had instructed us to spread the blessings of peace around. We should not hesitate in greeting each other, greeting those around us. So especially in coming to our homes, when we say, when we say, Salaamu Alaikum, this in fact is a dua. You know, we're asking that Allah bring peace uh, into this circumstance, into the home, into, uh, on those who are within the family. And Prophet Muhammad had said, there are three groups of people who will have a guarantee from Allah, the exalted, the sublime. The third group is a man who greets his family when he enters his home. The first was one who fights in the way of Allah, and the second was one who goes to the masjid. But the third in importance here is one who gives salams upon entering the home. So it's very, very important for us, you know, to, to begin the whole process of entering our homes, establishing our relationship in our homes with salams. Bismillah, calling on Allah for His help and giving salams in the home. And in the home, there are a number of things that we do regularly. Among them is eating and drinking, having meals three times or more in a day. And Prophet Muhammad had told us uh, that if a man remembers Allah while entering his house and while eating, Satan says, there is neither shelter nor supper for you. <coughs> On the other hand, if he enters without remembering Allah, Satan says, you have found shelter. And if he does not remember Allah while eating, Satan says, you have found both shelter and supper. So this is advice to us. Again, with regards to something which is very common in our lives, that is eating, we're eating so many times, that we remember to say Bismillah when we're eating. If we forget, you know, we say Bismillahi awwalahu wa akhirah. This is also a reminder for ourselves. See, because when, whenever we consider these various du'as, we should not treat them as ritual statements that have no real meaning. We just quote them before we do different things. And in terms of reflection on the meanings, we don't have any reflection there. It is just an act that we do. It's like an automatic act, you know. This is not the way that a dua benefits us. A dua, supplications of the Prophet ﷺ benefit us when we reflect on them. So when we say Bismillah, we're saying Bismillah in the name of Allah 
with regards to what we are doing, we're thanking, you know, it is by the power of Allah that we're able to eat this meal and we're able to take benefit from it because there are people around us who we know due to their sicknesses or illnesses, they're not able to eat. They are fed through tubes, etc., etc., you know. And at the same time, we also reflect on the food that we're eating. Is this food which we have obtained through halal means? Is this food we have obtained through halal means? Do we feel proud to say Bismillah over the food we're eating? Because if it is not halal food, then we have to consider that this is not something for us to be proud about. In fact, what we're doing is bringing a curse of Allah upon ourselves. A curse whereby our prayers will not be answered. And we will have built ourselves and our bodies, etc. with haram. So this is also a reminder to us that we make sure that what we're eating is from halal. If we go into the home of somebody who works in a bank, or whose earnings are from haram, we know it. Will we feel proud to say Bismillah before eating their food? No. We should feel shy. Because this is haram food. And this should, this, the fact that we should say Bismillah is enough to stop us to say, you know, brother, sister, I'm sorry, we cannot eat. I cannot eat at your place because your food is haram. So, Bismillah has a place, it has a meaning, and it should have an effect in terms of how we earn our living, how we deal with our relatives and our friends. Also, among the things that we do on a regular basis is we go to the bathroom. How many times a day do we go to the bathroom? And again, Prophet Muhammad has given us dua to say, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubuthi wal-khaba'ith. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from filth and evil jinns, male and female. Again, seeking protection from Allah. On one hand, because of the nature of the bathroom being a place of filth, this is a place where the evil jinn may uh, focus. Uh, a person who has not guarded himself or herself may be affected in the bathroom. And using the bathroom, again, these are times of weaknesses, physically, physical weakness, which affects psychologically ourselves and leaves us open to possible harm. So, Prophet Muhammad has given us this piece of guidance to protect us on a daily basis. Now, Having entered into our homes, having remembered Allah when eating, when using the bathrooms, we have to also purify our homes from the satanic things, whether they be among the uh, physical things in the home or things which affect our psyche, we have to purify our homes from the various uh, means by which Satan affects people. Among them is music.
Allah says in the Quran, in Surah Al-Isra, verse 64, with regards to Satan, and fool those whom you can among them with your seductive voice. Mujahid, the student of Ibn Abbas, had said, the voice of Satan, referred to in this verse, is singing. And Prophet Muhammad had said in Sahih al-Bukhari, some people from among my followers will drink alcohol, but call it by a different name. Stringed and wind instruments will be played for them, and women singers will perform for them. Allah will cause the ground to swallow them, and He will turn them into apes and pigs. In another narration, found in Sahih al-Bukhari, there will be people from my nation who will claim that adultery, silk, alcohol, stringed and wind instruments are lawful. This is telling us of the dangers of music and the things which accompany it. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud had said, music and singing cultivate hypocrisy in the heart, just as water cultivates the plants. And today, the whole society is or functions on a, uh, a musical plane. You enter the stores, there's music. You enter the elevators of apartment buildings, there's music. There's music everywhere. At least we should try to establish a sanctuary, a place for ourselves that is music free. And that is the home. Furthermore, we have a statement from Abu Huraira in which he quotes Prophet Muhammad as saying, Al-Jaras Mazamir al-Shaytan. Bells are the musical instruments of Satan. And in another narration, he said, Angels do not accompany travelers who have a dog or a bell with them. Bells, which today have become very common. It's on our telephones. It's in our, you know, clocks. You know, the bell, which is from Christian culture, from Christian tradition, which is ultimately from Satan, because Prophet Isa salam did not teach his followers to ring bells. This is something which they invented. And obviously, it came from Satan. It's satanic. And it is, as I said, because it is the basis of their religion, their call to prayer, is the bell, this uh, mizmar of Satan, the musical instrument of Satan. It is also throughout the society to built into the culture. So it's among the things that we have to be careful to purify our homes. Wherever we can, as much as we can, we need to get the bells out of our homes. And what do we do? We should replace this music, the bells, the, the voice of Satan, replace this in our homes with the Qur'an. We have so many instructions from Prophet Muhammad in which he said that we should recite the Qur'an in our homes. We have a statement from the Prophet ﷺ in which he said, 
Everything has an apex, and the apex of the Qur'an is Surah Al-Baqarah. Certainly when Satan hears Surah Al-Baqarah being read, he leaves the home wherein it is recited. He also said, don't make your homes like graveyards, for indeed Satan does not enter a home wherein Surah Al-Baqarah is read. So this is something we should take a note of. How many of us regularly recite Surah Al-Baqarah in our homes? But this is what Prophet Muhammad has offered us. This is, uh, these are authentic hadiths, uh, which we should be aware of if we really are serious about protecting our homes. Now some of you might say, Surah Al-Baqarah, this is long, two and a half Jews. I mean, how do I read this every day in a home? Well, maybe you as an individual may not have the time every morning or whatever, but your wife can recite, your children can recite, you know, it doesn't mean you have to sit down and do the whole recitation of everything all at one time. But you should try to read the Surah Al-Baqarah in your home. Even if you divide it up into parts and read it over every five days or whatever, you read a portion, you know, read it regularly. But besides that, we also have in Sahih, Sunan Al-Tirmidhi, uh, an, an easier, a little easier formula for us in which Prophet ﷺ had said, when the last two verses of Surah Al-Baqarah are read in a home for three consecutive nights, the devil will not come near it. The last two verses of Surah Al-Baqarah read on three consecutive nights, the devil will not come near it. So we have, if we can't handle Surah Al-Baqarah as a whole, we have at least the last two verses that we could recite regularly. We also have, along with it, a recommendation of the Prophet Muhammad to make dhikr in our homes. Uh, we have a hadith in which the Prophet said, Whoever says, La ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika lah, lahu al-mulk wa lahu al-hamd, wa huwa ala kulli shayin qadir. That is, there is no God but Allah who is alone without partner. The dominion and praise are His and He's able to do all things. One who says this a hundred times per day, will have a reward similar to freeing 10 slaves. 100 good deeds will be recorded for him and 100 sins erased. And he will have a charm against Satan for the whole day until the night. No one can do better than that except one who does more, does it more often. This is hadith found in both Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. This is something which again, is not that difficult for us to do after prayers, utilize this uh, formula of dhikr which the Prophet ﷺ gave us, you know, and unfortunately so many of us get caught up in seeking uh, other forms, other forms of dhikr which were not assigned by the Prophet ﷺ. So we end up doing all kinds of prescriptions except the ones which are really beneficial to us. Because really, no one can come along and tell us, do this so many times or do that so many times and it's going to do this for you and do that for you. If Prophet Muhammad ﷺ didn't say it, then no one else has the authority to prescribe these things for us. So we need to go and learn from the Prophet ﷺ those things which will benefit us. And recitation of Qur'an in our homes, Surah Al-Baqarah in particular, as well as dhikr, especially the dhikr which has been prescribed by the Prophet ﷺ, it does protect our homes from the satanic forces. Now, in the, with the recitation of Qur'an, again, just as in the case of the du'as, 
we have to keep in mind that Allah SWT told us, أَفَلَا يَتَدَبَّرُونَ الْقُرْآنَ أَمْ عَلَىٰ قُلُوبٍ أَقْفَالُهَا Will they not reflect on the Qur'an? Or are their hearts locked up? Will they not reflect on the Qur'an? So the, so the recitation of Surah Al-Baqarah, or the last two verses of Surah Al-Baqarah, or any other chapters from the Qur'an that we recite in our home, we should do that with reflection. We should not race through it so fast we can hardly make out the words of anybody else who is listening to us, because Allah told us also, وَرَتِّلِ الْقُرْآنَ تَرْتِيلًا That we should recite the Qur'an in slow, measured tones. This is the way that we recite the Qur'an. And this is the way in which it is going to benefit us. And Allah also told us in Surah Al-Furqan, وَقَالَ الرَّسُولِ يَا رَبِّ إِنَّ قَوْمِ اتَّخَذُوا هَذَا الْقُرْآنِ مَهْجُورًا هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ مَهْجُورًا That the Prophet ﷺ will say on the Day of Judgment, O oh my Lord, indeed these people have taken this Qur'an, have deserted this Qur'an, or have abandoned this Qur'an. This is one of the statements the Prophet ﷺ will say about some of his ummah. Let us not be amongst those who are pointed out in this way. It is also known from the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri that with the recitation of Qur'an, angels do come into the home, they come into the, env in the environment around the people who are reciting the Qur'an. Because there was a particular incident which happened in which he said that he had began to recite the Qur'an and <clears throat> whilst doing so, his horse became jumpy and almost trampled his son. And when he went over to see what was the, uh, the cause, he found there was something like a canopy over his head with lights in it. And when he, he came near it, it moved up into the heavens away from him. And when he related this to Prophet Muhammad Prophet had said, those were angels listening to you. If you had continued, uh, the people would have seen them in the morning and they would not have concealed themselves from them. Of course, this was in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. Angels at different points became visible. I mean, in our times, perhaps we don't necessarily expect that. But the fact of the angels coming around those who are reciting the Qur'an, uh, remembering Allah, this has been confirmed in a number of other hadiths from Rasulullah ﷺ. We also know Prophet ﷺ had said before going to sleep that one who recites Ayatul Kursi, uh, completely will have a protector from him, from Allah, against the devil until the morning. So this is something regularly before we go to sleep at night, we should recite Ayatul Khursi. And even Prophet ﷺ has given us uh, dua to make. If during our sleep we have troubled sleep, we wake up in a state of, of fear or, you know, we've had some kind of nightmare or we're, you know, in a state of frenzy or whatever, we're disturbed. Prophet ﷺ told us to say in a hadith found in Sahih Sunan Tirmidhi, أعوذ بكلمات الله التامات من غضبي وعقابي وشر عبادي ومن همزات الشياطين وعن يحضرون I seek refuge in the words of Allah, His complete words from His anger, His punishment, 
the evil of his slaves and from the proddings of Satan and from their being present. So Prophet Muhammad has not left in our home circumstances wherein uh, we, are, we don't have a means of protecting ourselves. We have the Quran, we have du'as, etc. Prophet Muhammad also purified his home from crosses. It's authentically narrated in Sahih al-Bukhari that the Prophet ﷺ never left anything in his home that had a cross on it without obliterating it. This was his practice. That wherever the symbols of Allah ends up in the home, this should be obliterated. You may find it on the packages of the things we're buying in the society around us because the cross is part of their society. It's part of their culture, part of their belief. So the cross will be worked into many, many different uh, goods, etc., that we're going to purchase outside, and we're bringing these things into our home. It was the practice of the Prophet ﷺ to purify the home by obliterating all of the uh, symbols of the cross. And also, he removed pictures from the home, pictures and statues. These were, were not supposed to be in the home. Prophet ﷺ had said, Angels do not enter homes wherein there are statues and pictures. And on one occasion, Aisha mentioned, I bought a pillow that had a picture on it. When the Prophet ﷺ saw it, he remained in the doorway and did not enter. I asked him, O Messenger of Allah, I repent to Allah and His Messenger. What did I do wrong? He said, What is this pillow? Uh, she said, I bought it for us to sit on and recline on. The Prophet ﷺ said, Surely the makers of these pictures will be punished on the day of resurrection. And it will be said to them, Give life to what you have created. Then he said, indeed, angels do not enter the homes in which there are pictures. So very, very important for us to purify the home, clear it out, clear out the pictures, etc. Of course, these pictures do not include uh, pictures of inanimate things, of, uh, of uh, trees, mountains, you know, buildings. These type of pictures are not included in this prohibition, as was explained by the Sahaba. And also we are required to remove from our home dogs. Again, dogs, the Prophet ﷺ had said, angels do not enter any home wherein there's a dog or a picture. And dogs again in this society are taken as the best friend of human beings. People bring them into their homes, they live with them, they go to sleep with them, they buy clothing for them. You know, the dogs are treated even better than other human beings. Of course, Muslims don't necessarily degrade the dog. We use them in places where it's necessary for hunting, for you know, protecting our homes, etc. But we don't take them in uh, as replacement for uh, family members. Because uh, <clears throat> it's very common amongst uh, non-Muslims, especially when the kids grow up, etc., that the dog replaces the children, you know? So they, they turn the dog like into a child. Uh, also, we are encouraged to pray in our homes. Prophet Muhammad had said, do not make your homes like graveyards. Make your optional prayers in your homes. He had further said, <clears throat> O people, pray in your homes, for certainly a person's best prayers are those that are offered in the home, except the prescribed prayers. That is the best prayers for us to make, outside of the prescribed prayers, the sunnah prayers, are, is to do them in our homes. You know, normally we're doing them in the masjid. 
You know, we do it in a very ritualistic kind of fashion. You know, you come in the masjid, you do two before, two after, or four before, whatever, you know. And that's your package that you come in, a package deal you do in the masjid every time you come. But we forget our homes. Prophet ﷺ told us that those are the prayers that we want to do in the masjid, you know, as a quick formula that we knock off when we come inside the masjid. These should really be done in the homes. They're best done in the homes, most acceptable to Allah, most pleasing to Allah to do them in our homes. When we come in the masjid, two raka'ah before sitting down. These are not the two before, right? But there are two before sitting down in the masjid. The Prophet ﷺ told us that if any of you enters a masjid, that you should not sit down until you have done two raka'at. Right? This is instruction. Otherwise, the sunnah prayers, we should try to do them in the home. And even inside the prayer itself, before we recite Surah Al-Fatiha, Prophet ﷺ had taught us to say, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ مِن نَفْخِهِ وَنَفَثِهِ وَهَمْزِهِ That is, I seek refuge in Allah from Satan, from his pride, نَفْخِهِ and his poetry, and his touch. Poetry being the music, the song, which is uh, commonly in the society around us. This is the authentic dua which is supposed to be said before uh, saying the Fatiha. Now people commonly say, Audhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem, but actually if you go back into the narrations of the hadith, you will not find that specifically mentioned. What you find authentically narrated as this one in, in Sunan Nabi Dawood, is that he always used to add to it, uh, seeking refuge in, in shaitan from the pride, poetry, and touch of Satan. And Prophet ﷺ also taught us that during our prayers, and many times we find ourselves confused in, the, in our recitations, you know, we lose track of where we are, we forget what, uh, what raka'ah we're on, you know, this kind of confusion that tends to come in on us many times in our prayers. Uh, when Uthman ibn al-As had mentioned this to Prophet ﷺ, he said, that is a particular devil known as Khanzab. Right? This category of shayateen or uh, evil jinns, you know, interfere in our prayers. And the Prophet ﷺ had said, whenever this happens, we should seek refuge in Allah from it and blow over our left shoulder three times. When we find this in the Salah, we find this, then we seek refuge in Allah, we say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem, and then we blow over our left shoulder three times. Uh, blowing it is sort of, it's called nafath, which is sort of between blowing and spitting. You're not actually spitting, and not quite blowing, you say, like this, right? So you say, do that over your left shoulder, and you do this in Salah. How many people practice this? You know, how many times have you ever seen anybody do this? But this is something clearly prescribed by Prophet Muhammad But all the, all the time people will complain about, you know, confusion in prayer, forgetfulness, etc., etc. And we have this instruction from the Prophet Muhammad and we don't make use of it. Uh, following that, in order to further protect our homes, we know that the, the, the family, the family structure should be one of love, and compassion. As Allah said, وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ أَنْ خَلَقَ لَكُمْ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ أَزْوَاجًا لِتَسْكُنُوا إِلَيْهَا وَجَعَلَ بَيْنَكُمْ مَوَدَّةً وَرَحْمًا إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَآيَاتٍ لِقَوْمٍ يَتَفَكَّرُونَ And among his signs is that he created for you spouses so that you may find 
in them tranquility and he placed love and compassion between you. Certainly in this are signs for those who ponder. And that is the foundation of the family structure. The relationship between the husband and the wife and the children. It should be one of love, compassion, tranquility, peace. You know, unfortunately in many of our homes there is little love, there's little compassion, and there's little peace. And this is one of the ways by which shaitan, you know, creates uh, confusion in the, the Muslim family by destroying the relationship of love and compassion. We have a statement narrated by Jabir ibn Abdullah in which he said that Prophet ﷺ said, Indeed, Iblis places his throne on water and then calls his agents. The most dear to him is the one who causes the most trouble. One of the devil comes and says, I did not leave him, human beings, until I cause a split between him and his wife. Iblis draws closer to him and says, You have done well. This is a narration from Prophet ﷺ. This is in Sahih Muslim. That this is one of the ways in which, you know, shaitan is very pleased. This is what uh, he promotes in the family, the breakdown of love. And Prophet ﷺ had said, that when people get angry, in particular in a particular instance where he saw a man who became so angry, his face became red, he said, Inni la'arif kalimatan law qalaha ladhahaba anhu alladhi yajidu. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytani rajim Indeed, I know some words which would cause his anger to subside if he said them. I seek refuge in, a, in Allah from Satan the accursed. When we find ourselves getting angry, husbands and wives, angry with our children, angry with each other, then as the Prophet ﷺ said, we should seek refuge in Allah from Satan. Because it is in times of anger that we end up saying things or doing things that we later regret. Prophet Muhammad had also instructed us at the time of marriage that we seek refuge in Allah from the evil that may come about from the marriage itself. He had said that when a person gets married, he should say, O oh Allah, indeed I ask you for the good which is with her and the good which you have created as an innate part of her character. And I seek refuge in you from the evil which is within her and the evil that you created as an innate part of her character. And Prophet ﷺ had also instructed us to seek refuge in Allah from Satan to protect our children, even at the time of having uh, relations, sexual relations with our wives. He taught us to say, Bismillahi, Allahumma jannibna shaitan wa jannib shaitan ma razaqtana. And he's promised that if one says this, that is in the name of Allah, O oh Allah, keep Satan away from us and keep Satan away from whatever you have bestowed on us or you will bestow on us, then if a child is conceived, Satan will not harm the child. And along with that, he also encouraged us whenever a child is born, to recite the adhan in the ear of the child. 
Abu Rafi'ah had said, I saw Allah's Messenger make the adhan in the air of Hussein ibn Ali when Fatima gave birth to him. Uh, and this hadith is authentic in the opinion of the majority of the scholars, though some scholars have questioned its authenticity. And we are also enjoined to seek refuge or protection for Allah for our children from Satan. He advised that we should wipe the heads of our children and make the supplication, أُعِذُكُمْ بِكَلِمَاتِ اللَّهِ مِنْ كُلِّ شَيْطَانٍ وَمِنْ كُلِّ عَيْنٍ I seek refuge for you with Allah's perfect words from every evil devil, poisonous animal, and evil eye. The Prophet ﷺ said, your forefather Abraham used to seek refuge for both Ismail and Ishaq using this supplication. These represent a variety of formula which Prophet ﷺ has given us. It is our responsibility to learn them and to use them for our benefit. In this way, we protect our homes from the satanic forces that are around the home, satanic forces which may enter the home. This is prophetic guidance. Either we believe in Allah, and we believe that Muhammad was the messenger of Allah, and we take what they have given us and use it, or we neglect it, and in neglecting it, we're actually indicating that we haven't truly believed in Allah, nor have we really accepted Muhammad as the messenger of Allah. Now there is another factor, and that in terms of protecting our home, and that is in the education of our children. That within the home, we have to educate them. Our wives should be educated, you know, primarily educated in the knowledge of the deen. As Prophet ﷺ instructed us, that seeking knowledge is compulsory on every Muslim, Fundamentally, this is Islamic knowledge, the deen, the knowledge of the deen necessary to, for your wife, for yourself, for your children, to go through a day doing what is pleasing to Allah. That much knowledge needs to be there. We need to have it ourselves, our wives need to have it, and our children need to have it. So we need to create an environment in the home where there is that basic knowledge of what is pleasing to Allah, in our relationship with each other, in whatever we do within the home. And that is reinforced by schools, Islamic schools, that if we are to try to establish this foundation in our homes, and then after that our children go out and go into uh, non-Muslim schools, in Kafir schools, in the non-Muslim society, then the vast majority of what we give them in the home will be erased. It will be erased and will be replaced by corruption. So one of the ways in which we protect our homes from Satan, especially in this society, is by establishing Islamic schools. And an Islamic school is not just necessarily a school in which people learn Quran and Hadith, but they will learn the knowledge which is necessary for them to survive in this society along with it, academic knowledge. but. It is not merely a school of Muslim children wherein the teachers are there because they couldn't find work elsewhere. And the children are there 
because they had become so much of a problem in the hands of the parents, you know, they had nothing else to do but to throw them in these Muslim schools, you know. This is not the Muslim school. The true Muslim school is one in which the teachers are dedicated. They realize that this role of teaching is ibadah. They have a job, a mission to fulfill. And the children that are going in the schools are children whose parents support it. They're not throwing them as a last minute, last resort effort. No. They have been laying that foundation of Islam in the in the homes and they want that foundation reinforced in the school. So there's real, you know, interaction between parents, children, and teachers. And you then create an Islamic environment in the school, which further reinforces what we're giving in the home. So the process of protecting the home, it involves also doing things outside of the home which will help to protect the home. And part of that protection for the family is living in a Muslim neighborhood. Again, if we buy a home someplace, our neighbors all around us are disbelievers, non-Muslims. Their children, they're involved in all kinds of things. And our children, we cannot lock them in the homes and say you cannot interact with the children around you. So they will interact with their neighbors. And when they go into the neighbor's home, all of the things that you've been trying to keep out of your home, the children become bombarded with. Your wife is influenced by the women around her. Yourself, you're influenced by the society around you. This is what makes it also, in order to protect the home, imperative that Muslims create Islamic communities. It's not enough just to live by yourself, little house on the prairie Islam, you know, where you're just, you know, off by yourself and, you know, it's a beautiful, wonderful little home. It doesn't exist. That home in the midst of a kafir society will be destroyed by the society around it. A Muslim should have Muslim neighbors. In this way, you also protect yourself, your deen, the deen of your children, the deen of your wives, etc. This is, this is essential. And this is why Prophet Muhammad had said, لَا تَنْقَطِعُ الْهِجْرَةِ حَتَّى تَنْقَطِعُ الْتَوْبَةِ That hijra will remain obligatory as long as tawbah is accepted. وَلَا تَنْقَطِعُ الْتَوْبَةِ حَتَّى تَغْرُبَ الشَّمْسِ مِنْ مَغْرِبِهَا And tawbah will continue to be accepted until the sun rises in the west. That means until the last day. These are amongst the signs of the last day. Hijra remains an obligation on the community. Hijra to create Muslim communities. It's difficult. It requires sacrifice. Really. But other societies have done it. There's Chinatown. It's here. These people have gotten together on the basis of the fact that they're Chinese. Don't we have something greater than that? Isn't Iman greater than being, you know, Chinese or Pakistani or Egyptian or whatever, no? We have Iman, and that should be the basis under which we create communities to protect our homes. So let us not delude ourselves into thinking that protection of the home stops with your front door. Protection of the home 
involves establishing Muslim communities with Muslim schools, Muslim environment, etc. The Muslim, the, the clinic. We insist on our wives that they cover themselves properly with proper hijab. And then when the time comes, they get pregnant, they have to be examined. You know, these examinations, very private examinations, we tell them to go, here's a doctor, you know, you have to expose yourself. The time of giving birth, this is what they're exposed. Our women are obliged to go into circumstances which are clearly haram. Imagine if Prophet Muhammad was amongst us, and we are there sending our women into these circumstances. How embarrassed, how bad we would feel. Right now we don't feel bad about it because everybody else is doing it. You know, this is the nature. When you're involved in corruption, then you become numbed to it. It doesn't have that kind of effect on you anymore. Maybe when you first migrated here from Pakistan or Somalia or whatever, you were shocked. But after you've been here, two years, four years, you know, everybody else is doing it, it just becomes a common thing, you know, then you no longer think about it anymore. But it is a great evil. It's a part of protecting the home, you know, protecting the chastity, the chastity, the modesty of our women is that we must have Muslim clinics. This is part of it. And unless we have that, then we all carry the sin of exposing our women in these circumstances. As we carry the sin of our children who deviate in the Kafir schools, we all carry the sin because we have not established alternatives, proper alternatives. We have not really sacrificed and worked to, to find an alternative to it. Instead, we have just gone along with the flow. Everybody else is doing it. Who can do it? We find all kinds of excuses. And the end result is that shaitan is our best friend. Shaitan has become our best friend in our homes, etc. The television, which so many you know, of our homes we have, we sit in front of it for hours on end, bombarded with corruption. This is what this television is. It is 99.99% corruption. There's a 0.001% which you could say, okay, this is some good points here. But 99.99% is corruption. Temptation. You say, okay, I'm only going to watch the news. But, you know, flipping the channels, you see, oh, what's that? You know, next thing you know, you're watching it. You know? I, mean, I mean, these people have specialized in trying to catch our attention. The satanic forces are active. And the best for most of us, if we cannot control, if we are not able to, to really only see on that television what is pleasing to Allah, if we can't do that, then get rid of the television. That's the bottom line, really. Get rid of the television. Because it's music. I mean, even when you're listening to the news, they can't give you the news as it is, they have to give you music along with it. Right? You know? I mean, even the, you know, the most simplest, or we could say the most clean of the programs, it's loaded with music. So, where, where do you end up? Where do you end up? I mean, these are amongst the challenges which, which, which we are faced with here. 
we want to protect our homes, then it means we're going to have to sacrifice some of those things that right now we find so enjoyable. We have to learn what Prophet Muhammad has taught us of the du'as, supplications, the thikrs, etc. We have to learn these things and utilize them and reflect on them. Recite the Qur'an regularly in our homes and reflect on it. And be believe me, if we are doing that regular in our homes, we will not have time for the television, for the other things, the corrupt elements that have entered into our homes today. We will not have time for it. And that's the bottom line. When we find spare time, turn it into worship of Allah. Doing what is pleasing to Allah. So in concluding, brothers and sisters, and um, due to the fact that we have a fundraising uh, situation in front of us, uh, we will leave the questions uh, for this presentation to after Maghrib, uh, inshallah. And um, I just want to say as, as a concluding point that we have the correct way of life. Islam is the best way of life. We have it. It is there for us. It is pure. We can find it. It is only for us to take it and to utilize it. If we do it, we benefit in both this life and the next. If we don't, then we are destroyed in both this life and the next. And the home is the basis of the Muslim family. Let us protect our homes from the tricks and the traps of Satan with what Allah SWT has given us, what the Prophet has advised us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You mentioned in your khutbah that angels would not enter uh, the homes of Muslims unless all statues and pictures of animate objects are removed. What is Islamic ruling gov governing photographs not displayed but kept in an album? Well, for those uh, scholars, there are scholars who hold that photographs are considered to be a part of picture making. Uh, so they include it with drawings, paintings, and everything else. For those scholars who hold that, and those uh, who have listened to their opinions and, and believe this to be the case, then it doesn't make any difference whether they're in albums or whether they're on display. You know, that they shouldn't be in the home, period. Uh, for those who hold, and there are other scholars who hold that photographs are not considered a part of the picture-making process, uh, that the picture-making, taswir, is limited to drawings, paintings, carvings, these type of things. Uh, though for those, those who follow that opinion, the scholars, generally speaking, who, who take that position uh, hold that as long as it's not put up on display, because putting up on display would still uh, call uh, to ta'zim or to um, uh, to honoring or giving special status to you know images uh, that this is Islamically not uh, liked or be considered makru or disliked or bordering on haram. 
This would include, well, you know, pictures of the rulers of different countries and things like this, where it, you know, becomes a fetish, or people even, you know, use this in terms of their sheikhs. For example, Sheikh Nazim, you know, he gives his followers. Uh, this, uh, Nazim, this is uh, the well-known uh, Naqshbandi, was a, a branch in, in the states. Kabbani is his uh, representative, is Khalifa. You know, they. Uh, he gives the followers photographs and they're told to, to focus on these photographs and this image in their prayers and this type of thing. You know, you have others that, that promote the same thing. So if it is put in albums and kept away, you know, on the basis of that opinion, it would be okay. You know, but putting it out on display, basically, uh, it would be uh, considered not acceptable Islamically to hang it on the walls, to blow them up, you know, to put them out, calling people's attention to it and giving it special status. Is it permissible to have a picture of people performing salah in Mecca? If yes, because it doesn't show their faces, are other pictures that don't show the details of the face only the silhouette of the person permissible. Now where the details are not worked out, where it's blurred or something like this, you know, um, it is, inshallah, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, even if it is actually a photograph, again, this again differs between those who hold photographs to be uh, haram and considered part of taswir and those who do not. But uh, once it's blurred in any case, there the image is no longer a clear image, then inshallah it should be okay. What about pictures uh, showing the Kaaba or mosques? Pictures, the same thing. Huh? Uh, just give me the ones on the topic, right? Uh, please come here. Okay, this is a long question which is not very clear. Please comment on protecting our families from shaitan when living in extended family households with. Um, I guess husband, wife, kids, mother-in-laws, father-in-laws. Um, I, I, there's, no, there, there's no difference. Uh, the principles, Islamic principles governing uh, the home and protecting the home are the same whether you're in an extended circum family circumstance or whether you're not. And the Prophet ﷺ said that Deen al-Nasiha, the religion is good advice, so you know where advice has to be given or needs to be given, it should be given. Um, is it only Isa that Satan did not touch at birth? Did, the, did Satan touch the Prophet ﷺ at birth? Well, according to the statement of the Prophet ﷺ, you know, it is only Isa and his mother who were not touched at birth. 80% of Muslims in Toronto want a community. Why aren't our leaders making this a priority? Or is it not important? Of course, it's very important. Um, why aren't leaders making it a priority? I don't really know. Um, it's really on uh, Muslims, uh, if the community want it, then they need to put pressure on the leaders of the community to make the necessary steps for it to be done. But in any case, you know, this is something, the idea of, of developing community, I mean, it doesn't have to depend on a leader. 
you know, or two leaders or some leaders. If enough people see the need and, 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 uh, and, and realize the, the haram state of being in this fragmented type of uh, situation, then they try to find others who have the same way of thinking and they try to, to establish something. You know, announce it to the rest of the community, inform people, encourage people, and you know, and then some people have to make a start. You know, a lot of times these type of things, uh, people jump on the bandwagon, as they say. You know, once there's some sort of effort has been made and some sort of success is being achieved, then you find more and more people come on. You know, usually it's started by only a few people. You know. Please give an ad advice to Muslim leaders here about the establishment of Islamic school. Well, uh, I mean, I think the issue of Islamic school has been expressed in the presentation I already made. I mean, it is something which the community in Toronto has not given enough uh, concern about because the few schools that have been set up are you know, not enough to cover anywhere near the number of Muslim children that are here in Toronto. So there really does need to be a heightened awareness amongst the community for the need to set up Islamic schools. And I hope, inshallah, we won't wait, you know, until there is serious damage, you know, uh, that the community then starts to wake up and try to put their kids in Muslim schools. There, are, there, is, there is a generation of people who came over here, you know, from Syria and, um, and Palestine and, uh, uh, you know, from back in the 30s and 40s. And uh, these people, virtually most of them have disappeared. They set up little centers, you know, in different parts of Canada and the United States. But today, you know, their children are gone. You know, they're not, Islam is no longer there. You know, I mean, Islam can be wiped out in a generation. And, and this is what we'll be faced with if we don't take the necessary steps to establish Islamic institutions of learning. And uh, let us not be fooled because a lot of people put their kids in school, you know, saying, well, you know, school, the knowledge in school, mathematics, all this stuff is neutral. You know, it's neutral. We're just, uh, they're just learning the necessary academics to, to get on with their life. I'm helping them at home. We have a Sunday school or we have a weekend school or whatever. The reality is that education is defined by a number of educationists as the method by which a civilization passes on its values to the next generation. This is education. By way, the way by which a civilization passes on its values to the next generation. So yes, though the teacher is telling you one plus one is two, the way the teacher dresses, what the teacher is encouraging the, chil encouraging the children to do, the images in the classroom, the whole environment of the school, that is the whole generation. So yes, though the teacher is telling you one plus one is two, the way the teacher dresses, what the teacher is encouraging the, chil encouraging the children to do, the images in the classroom, the whole environment of the school, that is 
the whole way of thinking of Western civilization. So though your child is learning one plus one is two, all that other stuff they're also learning. You know? And then we wonder, you know, why when the children, you know, reach 13 and 14, all of a sudden they're rebelling. You know, the girls want to take off their hijab, and you know, if they were wearing hijab, you know, the boys want to be, you know, looking like, you know, everybody else. And uh, staying out from home, joining gangs and all these other kinds of things, getting involved in drugs and all these type of things, you know. I mean, what, all we have to do is consider what happened in Somalia. The Christian da'wah in Somalia went on for many years. This, the missionaries went into Somalia and they made a massive effort to try to convert Somalis. But did they succeed? Did they manage to convert anybody in Somalia to Christianity? I think they said that there's one family they managed. Someplace, somewhere, they managed to convert one family. You know? You know after decades of effort and money and everything, they failed. Miserably. But when they brought Somalis to England, to America, to Canada, how many Somalis now have become Christians? Hmm? How many? See, they've succeeded here where they couldn't succeed there. Why? Because of the culture, because of this environment. A Muslim brought into this environment, he has no, or she has no foundation, no root, no base to fall back on. So the rug is pulled out from under them, then it's very easy to get at them. So they have succeeded here where they failed elsewhere. So, I mean, the, the need for school is something which the community has to keep at the leadership, keep, you know, bringing this up, stressing it, pushing for it, uh, because really the, leaderships, the leadership of the community uh, acts according to, ultimately according to the desire of the community itself. You know, you get the leaders that you deserve. kinds of music haram, where do we fit in the hadith of Aisha when she and some friends were dancing and, they, well they weren't dancing please, and Abu Bakr wanted to stop them and the Prophet ﷺ told him to carry on. They weren't dancing, they were, you know, singing uh, some songs, right? These are girls under uh, the age of puberty, right? Girls or boys singing you know, girls singing under the age of puberty, it's okay in the presence, males or females can hear it. But for uh, women, because puberty is the dividing line between a girl and a woman, uh, those over puberty, for uh, women to sing who are over puberty, the only one people who can listen to them are either their maharim or other women. Males who are uh, over puberty, uh, either group may listen to them. Because the special mention was made of singing girls, you know, as mentioned in the hadith from Bukhari, etc., that people, Muslims in the future, you know, part of the signs of the last day, they would adopt these, you know, singing girls as part of their um, acceptable culture, etc. Um, 
then if girls or men or young boys are singing songs with, whose contents are haram, then it will also be haram. Or if the singing is accompanied by musical instruments, you know, then again it will be haram. Because the only acceptable uh, instrument that may be used to accompany uh, singing is the duff, you know, which the Prophet Muhammad uh, sanctioned and encouraged the use of during uh, marriages, etc., etc. Can you please elaborate on wind instruments according to Quran and Sunnah? Wind instruments means all instruments which produce sound by way of the wind, you know, by blowing, like uh, saxophone, flute, you know, and anything that imitates that sound, because it's possible to create the sound of the saxophone and the flute now electronically, you know, with the synthesizers, it's possible to create that sound. And it is also haram. I mean, one can't say, well, I'm not using a wind, a wind instrument, I'm doing it electronically. No, if the end result is the same, because what is forbidden is not so much the instrument itself, but the sound which comes out of the instrument. So if you produce that sound through some other means, it is also haram. People seem to be really tied up in this music thing here, right? What kind of music is halal? Rap, Indian, what about Yusuf Islam songs? Are they halal? If the words of songs are good, uh, praising Allah, but it's accompanied by, with music, is it good? No. The point is, as a, as a basic principle that I mentioned, of one not being accompanied by musical instruments. It doesn't matter, I mean, if you are reciting Quran and you, you know, put it to a musical beat and you add, you know, because unfortunately there were Muslims, I remember uh, when I came into Islam here in Toronto, you know, way back in uh, 72, uh, there were Muslims in America who had put out albums where they were reciting Surah Rahman and they had, you know, big jazz band going in the background. <laughs> you know, and this, was, uh, uh, this was happening and, and there are people doing it till now. You know, but the point is that this is haram. This is haram. The fact that uh, what you are, you know, saying or what is being sung is halal uh, doesn't now justify the use of any kind of background. And in terms of Yusuf Islam songs, the ones where he doesn't have uh, musical accompaniment are fine, and the ones that he does have are not fine. Uh, is it only Prophet Suleiman who had power over the jinns and the shaitans? Is there any other prophet who had control over them? Well, as far as we know, it was only Prophet Suleiman. You know, this is mentioned in the hadith, Prophet Muhammad you know, when he was making salah, and um, 
this companion saw him reach out in the saliva like he was grabbing someone, something, and he, they asked him about it afterwards, and he said that there was, you know, an evil jinn, shaitan, that came to him in his salah and tried to break his salah, so he had reached out and grabbed it, you know, pushed it off him, and he had thought to try to subdue it and tie it to the masjid so everybody could see it in the morning, but then he remembered the dua of Prophet Sulaiman, which was that Allah give him a mulkak, a dominion, which he would not give to anyone after him, and he did not. Is it true that Prophet Jesus was the only prophet that did not commit a sin? Well, I, I don't know that. And why his birth was so different and also his work, example, healing uh, the sick and raising the dead. Well, his birth was just a part and parcel of the um, creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of human beings in different forms, in different ways. He created Adam without a father and mother. He created Eve without a uh, mother. And he created everybody else he created with the father and mother. That's just the completion of the different modes by which Allah has created human beings. It doesn't elevate them or remove them from the status of human beings. Well, this is not really the topic, but let me see how the job. What should a Muslim brother do when one of the family members is corrupt and brings them objects or brings haram objects into the home and affects your heart and weakens it? Well, they should instruct that family member not to bring those things in the home. They should try to stop it. Um, if they're in a position of authority, as Prophet ﷺ said, Man munkaran Whoever amongst you sees an evil should change it with his, with his hands. And if he's unable, then he prohibits it by speaking out against it. And if he's not able to do even that, then at least he hates it or she hates it in her heart. I'm a student who... Oh, okay, before we go into students who... Uh, interest. Okay, this is not really on the topic. Let's see if there are anything else. Is it permissible to say a surah or ayah before meals other than Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim? Well, I suppose it's possible, but I mean, why would one want to do that when the Prophet ﷺ said to say Bismillah, you know? The point is that, why should we want to look for things other than what the Prophet ﷺ gave us? You know, this is the thing that always surprises me. You know, people will always be coming to me with these, you know, can we do these things or can we do that? This one said, if we said Yasin 30 times in the morning and 30 times in the evening, we'll get this and we'll get that. I say, hey, do you know what the Prophet ﷺ said about, you know, Su'al Mulk or what he said? About well, they didn't know. I said, well, that's where you start. You know, start with all of the things. If you just had to study all of the different instructions which the Prophet ﷺ told us about the different surahs, about the different du'as and so on, so you would have more than enough to occupy you. You know, why do we have to go way 
beyond that into finding things which, you know, people are telling you. Where did this person get it from? Oh, he dreamt. Some sheikh came and told him in a dream that if you do this, you know. I mean, why, why? You know, let's stick with the Quran and the Sunnah. You know, as the Prophet told us, you know, to bite onto it with our molar teeth, you know. Is it permissible to say du'as or supplications you mentioned in any language other than Arabic, English for example, or one's native language? You know, general supplications, you know, just calling on Allah. Of course, you call on Allah in your own language. If you want, you, you know, of course, if you're making du'as which the Prophet ﷺ prescribed, then it's better to, you should do it in Arabic. This is how he taught it. But you should do it with understanding, as I said. Not just learn to parrot the words, you don't have any understanding. But you understand it and you say it in accordance with the understanding. But just general du'a, you know, like after salah, you know, it's the custom, you know, in some areas, some places, the imam will turn around and he starts to make a set of du'as in Arabic. And everybody after him will be just saying, Ameen, 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 like this, right? They don't know what in the world he's saying, but it's just Ameen, Ameen. Of course, this is pointless. This is pointless. You know, it's not from the sunnah anyway, right? And it is pointless because, you know, du'a, supplication, has to come from the heart. I mean, how can it be coming from the heart if you don't even know what people are saying? And it's... it's I mean, we have to use our heads, you know. Islam is not a religion without reason to, to it, you know. This is, uh, this is what, when we start to practice Islam in this fashion, where it is just a ritual, a set of rituals, this is what leads our children, for example, as they, they, they mature and they start to question things, to reject the Islam that we are offering them. Because it has no rhyme or reason to it. It's just a set of rituals. We don't, we only, the reason why we do it is because our forefathers did it. You know, this is not Islam. You know, Islam is a way of life which has meaning, and has sense, has value. Value which we appreciate when we are able to understand and apply. You know, and this is how we should be living our Islam. Is it permissible for women to pray besides men? In a separating, in the absence of a screen or partition or, or a full section. Um, well, remember the masjid of Prophet Muhammad how was it? Right? In the Prophet's masjid, was there any screen? Was there any partition? No. The front part of the masjid, the men prayed. The back part of the masjid, the women prayed. That's how it was. A good Muslim wife who is doing her best to keep her home from Satan, and the husband is not practicing the way of Allah, is it better that she be patient or live separate? Well, it depends on what one means by the husband is not practicing the way of Allah. If the husband has become a disbeliever, then it is haram for her to remain married to him. If, it is, if his not practicing the way of Allah is less than that, meaning he's negligent, he's lazy, you know, in certain Islamic requirements, etc., then she tried to be patient with him, 
um, advise him, try to get others to advise him, try to get him, you know, try to use whatever is in her means to try to build his faith, to help him. Um, if his uh, negligence, if his negligence is leading to her inability to practice Islam, like for example, he doesn't pray or he doesn't prays only on occasion and then he is not allowing her to pray regularly or not or you know affecting the children not you know allowing the, the children for example to cover for example you know he is he has a negligent kind of attitude so he doesn't care about hijab you know he doesn't want her to wear hijab or he's not allowing her to let the children wear hijab you know then when it reaches a, a point where his negligence reaches a point where it is threatening her deen or the deen of her children then it is necessary for her to separate for the sake of Allah Okay, there's another question on this one. Um, can you tell us more about working in the bank and how it is going to be haram? Well, you know, working in the bank is haram because the bank is fundamentally, and we got a couple of other questions like this, uh, fundamentally uh, based on riba, based on interest, you know, and um, it means then that a person working there in whatever capacity they work there will be in haram. And a person may say, well listen, you know, I'm just the sweeper. I only sweep the floor. You know, I'm only a guard. I have a uniform, I stand by the door. You know, or I'm only a computer operator. I only work the computer. I'm not, you know. Well the point is that if we think of the bank, replace the bank with a brewery. A brewery, you know, where they make alcohol. What do you think about sweeping the floors in a brewery? Would you think that's justified? What do you think if you were a guard for a brewery? Do you think it would be justified? No. Why? Because the brewery is fundamentally haram. It's fundamentally haram. And there's no difference in that sense between the brewery and the bank. So, a person who works in the bank in any capacity, his earnings are, is going to be haram. I'm a student who wants to attend a college, but I can't cover the expenses without getting a loan. Will you please give a brief explanation how this can affect? Well, I don't know about how this can affect, but um, getting a loan, which means paying interest, is haram. You know? And uh, the thing is that we cannot justify, you know, under the heading of necessity, right? Because the term in Arabic, durura, you know, durura in the Sharia, means whatever a circumstance, whatever circumstance will lead to the loss of life or limb. Right? The loss of life or limb. You lose an arm, you die, you know, you become deathly sick. You know, where your your existence is threatened, this is the circumstance of Durura. 
taken from the verse which spoke about the forbidden things to us, after which, you know, Allah said, you know, if you eat, you know, if you're forced, right, in that circumstance, to eat pig, whatever, to stay alive, then it's permissible, you know, in that circumstance, and only to the degree that is necessary to stay alive. Now, can we say that taking this loan falls under that category? Can we say that taking out a mortgage on a home falls in that category? No. No. It's not justifiable. How do you know shaitan is in your house or family, among your family members? Well, if, if any of the things which we spoke about in the lecture, you know, exists in the home, then you know that shaitan is active there. If we're talking about, you know, shaitan actually possessing people and this kind of thing, you know, it will become evident if people start to change their habits radically, they start to speak in other voices, you know, I mean, these, these are among the signs. Otherwise, we don't need to be just worrying about shaitan uh, being in one of our family members or touching one of them. No, what we need to do is just focus on doing the things which the Prophet ﷺ instructed us to do. We do that to the best of our ability, we put our trust in Allah, and we just keep on going forward. If we suffer, if we, you know, fall under the influence, uh, satanic influences, etc. Then we use the cures and the methods which Prophet ﷺ gave us, you know, different du'as to say over the people who are sick, use things you know, that the Prophet ﷺ prescribed, like uh, you know, uh, the water of mushrooms is found in Sahih Bukhari. You know, he said for people who have, are affected by the evil eye, Ain, they uh, use this water, drink it, whatever, uh, to, as a cure for the, the eye. You read about these things, you know, I did a book called The Exorcist Tradition in Islam, which deals with uh, the, the history of it, the concepts, comparative study, and cures and treatments, method of the Prophet Wasallam, etc. You know, perhaps if you want to get into it more detail, you can read about it there. My parents are Christians, so the house is filled wall to wall with crosses and images of Jesus and Mary. Can I still make salah in the house without removing all of these objects? Because I can't. I can't tell them I'm Muslim, I need them financially. Well, uh, if one in one's room, you know, where you are, you pray in your room, with, you know, which is free from the crosses and the images, it's okay. And if one finds oneself in a circumstance where this is the only place to pray, the only place you're able to pray, you know, it is conceivable sometime uh, in some place, if you're traveling, you find yourself in a situation where the only place you can get inside to pray is a church. You know, it's, yeah, it's snow outside, you can't pray in the snow, whatever. You know, that uh, if you prayed in that location, I mean, out of a, a need there, there was nothing else available, that the prayer is still acceptable. I mean, you're not praying to the, um, to the, to Jesus or whatever. In terms of needing your parents financially, um, if it is a situation where you can't exist on your own, you know, you're young or whatever, 
then it is understandable that you want to hide your Islam from them. You can do so uh, until you're able to, you know, be independent. If I work in a hotel as a housekeeper, cleaning rooms, picking up beer and alcohol bottles, is it haram for me to work there? Well, no. The hotel is different from the bank and the brewery. Because the hotel is not fundamentally haram. I mean, if people go into the hotel and maybe drink some alcohol, or maybe they fornicate, commit adultery, whatever, that doesn't make the hotel itself haram because the building, the concept of having a place where people can stay when they're traveling and so on and so this is halal. The act that they're involved in there is haram. So if you're a cleaner in the place, then you would not be considered in a, in a haram situation. If you are working in the bar, if they have a bar in there, you know, if you got a job, if you're going to work in the bar where you're going to be serving alcohol, then that of course becomes haram. Okay, okay. I'm a young woman and I want to be committed to my religion. I want to become a hafiz. What should I do? I feel I'm too old. I'm I feel I am too old to go to Islamic school. Well, um, people become hufaz, you know, memorizers of the Quran without going to Islamic school. I mean, meaning, I guess a person here means like a school for memorization of Quran. So, It is possible to work out some kind of program outside of an Islamic school whereby one memorizes the Quran. Please give us some advice in regards to depression. What should one do if one is depressed? It's a big problem in this society. A lot of Muslim brothers and sisters are experiencing it. Uh, please help. Well. In the case of depression, one has to look and see what is the cause. You know, there's not a pill, magic cure for depression per se. One has to look at the cause. You know, if the cause is from being here in the society with the corruption, all the different things around, then the cure is hijra. That's the cure. The cure is hijra. Get out. If it has to do with success and failure, you know, because you came here thinking that life would be so rosy and wonderful, you know, back home in your country, the people who went to Canada, they seem to all be doing well, and you came and you didn't find things so good, you know, you can't hardly get a job, you're living on welfare or whatever, so on, so on, so Then you have to analyze, you know, why you came here and what you came here for. Was it really pleasing to Allah? It's better to go back to your own whole country, be amongst your Muslims and you know brothers and sisters, etc., family, and uh, survive on you know a smaller amount. You know maybe you didn't get a piece of the pie, the Canadian pie, right? Maple leaf pie, yeah, maple leaf pie. You know, but um, 
you know, it's better that you save your deen than acquire pieces of the dunya and lose it. Is it Allah's promise that men who commit adultery will marry a woman who commits adultery? Well, it's not, it's not a promise, meaning that if you commit adultery, Allah is going to make you marry somebody who also committed adultery. Meaning that she, when you marry your wife, she's going to go out and commit adultery. This is not how the verse goes, right? It's just saying that, that for a person who commits adultery, uh, the community should not give their daughters to him unless there is another amongst them who has also committed adultery. It means that is what he deserves. Or she, if she commits uh, fornication, actually really fornication, because adultery, they should be killed according to Islamic law. So, you know, fornication, you know that, uh, I mean, if you know somebody is a known fornicator, you know, a person who's not a virgin who comes and wants to marry a daughter, then you don't offer your daughter to this individual, no matter what, if he's a doctor or a lawyer, you know, or an Indian chief, right? You don't give your daughter to him. Because the deen is what is most important. If he is corrupt, then it doesn't matter what degrees and, and position he has in society. It is haram for you to give your daughter to such a person. One girl found out that the man she was to marry committed adultery. He told her. She never did that sin and refused to marry him. Correct. Now what she did was wrong? No, she was correct. Was he wrong to tell her? No, he should have told her. Also, many men do this sin. How, a good, how is a good girl going to make sure that the man never committed this sin? Well, she asks. She has doubts. She asks. And um, if he hides it from her, then, you know, that is beyond. She's done what she could. That is beyond her. Actually, it shouldn't even be up to her to ask. The family should find out. She shouldn't be put in a position of having to ask. If a father is a non-Muslim, but part of Ahlul Kitab, would he be able to be a wali to his Muslim daughter? No. Can Ahlul Kitab be the guardian of a Muslim sister? No. Guardian meaning one who one who uh, gives away a woman for marriage, right? Who has the final okay of her marrying or not marrying? Actually, I think we better stop on these questions here now. Uh, I say we we don't need to write in any more questions. We have enough to try to take care of. I think we just. Gonna have to um, close things down, Charlie.